Thank you for joining us for today's Practical Living broadcast, and I pray that through this message that you will learn how to apply God's Word and truths to any situation in your life. Stay with us as we discover God's truths that will transform us. Uh, This weekend and next weekend about a topic called Restricted by Religion. Restricted by Religion. Would you say that phrase with me? Restricted by Religion. In this series, we're looking at Jesus who is our way maker. He makes a way for us. And what I want to talk to you about this weekend and next weekend, this will be a two-part message. As I started digging into the message this week, I just, again, realized I had far too much content to try to cover it all in one weekend, so I just split it in two, and we'll look at two points again this weekend and two, another, two other points next weekend. But one of the most important parts of your life is your soul, who you are on the inside, and finding real satisfaction on the inner part of your being, your soul. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gained the whole world but lose his soul? And there are many people who are going through life today, and even Christian believers, sadly, who have an empty soul. Their soul is not vital. It's not alive. It's not vitalized by the presence of God. And there are many reasons for that. And one of the reasons I want to talk about this weekend and next is the reason called religion in our lives. And when I use the word religion, I want to define it in a specific way for us, because the word religion in and of itself is not a bad word. Actually, the Apostle James uses that word in a part of his uh, letter, uh, the Epistle of James. So it's not necessarily a bad word, but oftentimes it can have very negative application in our lives. And so I decided I would give you a, a working definition as I'm using the word religion this weekend, and I'm going to put it on the screen here for you. It should be on your notes as well, and that's this def- definition. Here's what, how I'm defining religion for the purposes of this message. It's man's methods and attempts to get to God, please God, and secure eternal life. Very important statement, man's methods and man's attempts to do what? Get to God please God, and somehow secure life eternal. It's how people try to work out a relationship or a connection with God. And what we often don't understand is that Jesus actually came to destroy religion in these terms. He came to open a way to God that is beyond a religious system. In fact, the whole story of Jesus is not us getting to God. The whole story of Jesus is God getting to us. The fact that God loved us so much that He sent His only begotten Son into our world so that He could reach us where we are instead of us trying to find Him. Oftentimes people say, I found Jesus, but in reality, Jesus found you. He found you. He loves each one of us. He's looking for each one of us. He wants a relationship with each one of us. But quite often, this thing called religion, as it's being defined here, gets in the way. Our attempts to somehow get to God and please God and secure for ourselves by our works and by the things and the rituals that we do, somehow securing eternal life. So I want to talk about two things, as I said this weekend, in relationship to this, and then we'll look at two more next weekend. Here's the first thing let's talk about for a few moments together, to understand that every Everyone is longing and looking for God. Everyone. Every human being, whether they realize it or not, they're longing for and they're looking for God. This is the beginning point in understanding where religion will come in, as we'll describe it in a moment. Within the soul of every human being is this longing for something and someone greater than themselves. Every person has it. How do we know that every person is looking for, longing for 
God? Well, as I was thinking about this message, I identified at least four things that we look at in our culture that helps us to realize that everybody's looking for, longing for God, trying to find God in some way. Let me give you these four things. First of all, the presence of worship in all cultures. Anthropologists and sociologists have uh, understood and written about cultures, ancient cultures, throughout modern cultures, and every culture has some form of worship, something where they're attempting to have some connection with God. It might be related to an idol or some religious system or form, but every culture that has ever been discovered has something outside of themselves that they're seeking to worship. Again, anthropologists and sociologists have confirmed this reality. Why is this the case? It's because there's something that is longing for and looking for God in every human soul. There's a second way that we know this is a reality through the expression of prayer by most people at some point in time in their lives. At some point in time in their lives, most people will pray at least one time. Even the most hardened atheists, when they're in trouble, will often say, oh, God. It's been said that there are no atheists in foxholes. There are no atheists in situations where there's great crisis. Many times, even in those moments, someone who's denied or seeks to deny the existence of God will cry out to God in a moment of weakness, in a moment of need in their life. And that very reality, the fact that we are crying out to God at some level indicates the fact that we long for and we're looking for a relationship with God. I'll give you the third reason that we see evidence for this longing for looking for God. The use of God's name in conversations and profanity. Have you noticed that God's name comes up all the time? Even by people who don't claim to know God? Oh, God this, and oh, my God that, and God comes up time and time again. And oftentimes, people who don't even claim a relationship with Jesus use his name all the time. Jesus this, and Jesus that, and Jesus Christ this, and and they use these terms. Why? Because there's something that is drawing out or calling out to someone greater than themselves. They may not recognize it. I also find it quite interesting that when it comes to profanity, the name of God, the name of Jesus, Jesus Christ, these are the names that are used. I've never heard someone say, oh, Buddha. It's always Jesus. That should indicate something to us. It should indicate the fact that his name is above every name, and there's a devil trying to denigrate it. Amen? Understand that, okay? These are practical things that we observe in life, okay? As has been said before, it doesn't require rocket scientists to figure this out, okay? It's telling us something. Let me give you another reason why. We, we know people are looking for, longing for God, references to heaven and hell and human interactions and literature. Read literature going back into ancient history. You'll find references to heaven, references to hell, even in our conversations day in and day out. How many times do you hear the word hell? Somebody, some folks can't say no without putting a hell in front of it. Some people can't say yes without putting a hell in front of it. And some people can't tell you where to go without including that term, Okay. Why? Because there's something in the human soul that realizes that we exist beyond this world, that there's something beyond this life, that there's something that seems to represent an eternity that we may not want to talk about, but we have to somehow affirm that it must be or may be a reality. And so this is an indication of the fact that there is this longing for God and this looking for God in the the heart of every human being. 
Solomon, the wise writer inspired by the Holy Spirit, makes this observation in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. He, God, has planted eternity, a sense of divine purpose in the human heart, a mysterious longing. This is the amplified version. A mysterious longing which nothing under the sun can satisfy except God. Yet man cannot find out, comprehend, grasp what God has done, his overall plan from the beginning to the end. You can't find it out on your own is what... Uh, the writer is saying here, inspired by God's Spirit. God has planted what? Eternity. And I love this, these phrases. A sense of divine purpose in every human heart. It's a mysterious longing which nothing under the sun can satisfy except God. Pascal, the French mathematician of the 17th century, physicist, Christian philosopher, made this statement. He said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. In every human heart, there's a God-shaped vacuum. Everyone is longing for a relationship, longing to know their Creator and to somehow serve and worship their Creator. Everyone is longing for and looking for God. The second point that I want to share with you today as we unpack this together is to understand then that people, because they're looking for God, they attempt to find and please God in many different ways. They're looking for Him and they attempt to find Him and somehow please Him in lots of different ways. Man's attempt, we might say. I want to talk to you about three of the most common ways that people on their own try to find God, try to deal with the God issue in their lives. What are these ways that God, people try to deal with this God issue? The first way is simply this. They intellectually deny the existence of God. That's how they deal with the God thing. If I can just push God out of my reality and say he doesn't exist, then I don't have to deal with him. I don't have to deal with theological matters. I can remove God from the equation of life so that there's no need to worry about his requirements of me or my relationship with him. And there's some folks that choose that path. They choose to intellectually deny and intellectually dismiss the existence of God. Now, when I use the word intellectually here, I don't necessarily mean smart. Because you can be intellectual but not be very smart. By the word intellectual here, I'm talking about just people who rationalize somehow. And through their mental exercising, they push God out of their world and they have a mental approach, a rational approach that doesn't include anything beyond what they feel like they can figure out on their own, and they reason their way away from the reality of God. Now, I want you to look at what the Bible says about this approach. The psalmist says in Psalm 53, verse 1, only fools say in their hearts. Read it with me. What do fools say? In other words, it's foolish. Just to give it another word here, it's foolish to say there is no God. Why is it foolish to say there is no God? Because the universe in and of of itself is declaring to us the reality of God. Think about just our universe. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. And so if you walk out on a starry night, you look up into the sky and the black sky with all the beautiful stars there that are shining, and you can't fathom how far the universe goes. It's beyond our comprehension. 
And we somehow realize through human, our human uh, origins and, and the fact that we in, as human beings have unique DNA that has an order and a structure to it and our world operates in an orderly, structurally manner. There must be someone who designed all of this. This cannot happen by accident. You can't take a bunch of car, car parts and throw them together in a box, shake it up, and a car comes out. And the same is true in our world today. If we look at this beautiful world that God has created, the animals, the creatures, all the the, the beautiful colors, you walk out and see a beautiful sunset or a sunrise painted by God, you have to realize there must be a creator. And it's foolish to say there is no God. It is foolish to say that. Let's think about just the earth for a moment. Where our earth is located in the solar system and in the universe If we were just a few degrees closer to the sun, we would all burn up. And if we were just a few degrees away from the sun, we would all freeze. But God said, I put my humanity right where I wanted them to be. So they will have four seasons of the year. There will come a fall and a winter and a spring and a summer and harvest time and planting time. And the rhythm of life will establish because I set it in place. I set it in place. So that's why the Bible says it's foolish. It's foolish to say there is no God. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth, push the truth down by their wickedness. They know the truth about God that is internally, down inside. Everybody knows this. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. How? Forever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Romans chapter 1 verse 22 says, Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. God is not laughing at us in terms of this when he calls us fools. He's just reminding us of how foolish it is to say there is no God. I've had many conversations over the years with people who've talked about the fact I don't believe there's a God. And I can't accept this leap of faith to believe that there's a God. And what I will often reflect on when they say something like this is you've just said that you believe something that's a leap of faith that you say you can't believe another thing that you believe is a leap of faith. Let me explain what I mean. If you say I can't believe there is a God because that requires a leap of faith, you've just said you believe there is no God, which also requires a leap of faith. Both of them are believing, okay? Are you with me? Okay. And so when people deny that they don't want to live by faith, by reality, even to say, I don't believe there's a God is to operate in faith. And I will tell you something that it takes a lot more faith to believe there is no God than it takes to believe there is a God. Okay. Because there's so much evidence for the reality of who God is. But when it comes to this longing, this looking for God, the way a lot of people deal with it is they just push God completely out of their life. Some to the, to the degree that they say, I just won't believe that there's a God. He doesn't exist in my life world. The second way that people push God out of their life or try to deal with this whole issue of their longing for God is by attempting to fill their worship void with other gods. If you 
have kids and, and, and you're, you're, you're about, if you're a mom or a dad about to serve dinner for your kids, one of the things that you say to them when you find them running to the cookie jar before dinner is you say, don't fill up on that. We're just about to have dinner, right? Okay. Don't fill up on all that junk because I'm going to serve you real food in just a moment. So it's a warning because you know if they fill up on the wrong stuff, they will not be hungry for the right stuff, correct? Okay. Are you hearing me today? Okay. So if you fill up on the wrong stuff, you'll not be as hungry for the right stuff in your life. Okay. And the reason that a lot of people suppress their hunger for God is they try to suppress their hunger for God by filling their life with all kind of other gods, other things in their life. Okay. By a God, I mean anything that you worship or that you give allegiance to above God, that you look to as your source of happiness, that you look to for fulfillment in your life, whatever you're looking to as your primary source of allegiance and fulfillment, that is your God. And the Bible warns us over and over again about this word that I'm going to connect here with this, this concept, and that is the word idolatry. And that's what it involves. That's what's involved here. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than the one true God. Now, as soon as I use the word idolatry, many times we go to think, go, our minds go to think about these little statues that people bow down to made of gold or, 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 or silver or wood or whatever it might be. But this is not the reality of idolatry. It may have been in some cultures. It may still be in some cultures today. But idolatry is all about, again, replacing the one true God with little gods in your life that cannot satisfy you. Take a look at what, again, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. They began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused, very similar to what's going on in our world today. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. We read that a moment ago. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols. And then he describes in the culture that he was in that day, idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. We can fashion idols out of pretty much anything. Anything that you put before God, you fashioned an idol. And I will tell you something, idolatry isn't a denial of God. It is a replacement of God with other things that will never satisfy you. And so we have this longing for God, this looking for God. And so either we push God completely out of our world, don't believe in him, I don't have to deal with him, or we start trying to fill our lives up with other things that are never going to really satisfy us. And here's a third thing that people do, and that they, they create and exercise religions. Okay. Let me define religion for you again. Please listen to the way that I'm using religion today in today's message. It's man's method and attempts to get to God, please God, and secure eternal life. Man's methods. Man's. Man's ideas of, you know what? I want God. I know I long for him, but let me figure out a way that I can get to him. Let me figure out a way that I can work to please him. Let me figure out a way that I can earn my eternal life and earn a relationship with God. By the way, as you, as you study in our world culture today, there are about 4,300 religions or religious sections in our world today. 4,300. Think about that. 4,300 ways that people say, hey, this is how you get to God. No, this is how you get to God. No, this is how you get to God. And all of them are about how you get to God. 
But what I want you to understand very clearly today is that the Bible doesn't give us, give us the story of how we get to God. The Bible gives us the story of how God gets to us. Okay. There's a very important distinction here. Because religion is our works trying to get us to God, but God says, you can't get to me. On your own, you cannot get to me. It is impossible for you to get to me because you're created in sin. There's brokenness in your life. You don't even know how to relate to me. And so because you can't get to me, I'm going to get to you. I'm going to come right where you are, and I'll get right into your world, and I'll come into your life so that you can have opportunity to build relationship with me. And so religion will leave you frustrated, and it will leave you empty. It never satisfies you fully. Our attempts to get to God and our attempts to please God and our attempts somehow to gain eternal life on our own. God says, no, that's not going to work, but there is a way that will work. I want to draw your attention as I'm wrapping up today to a passage of scripture that we're going to unpack together in the next few moments that I believe will help you to see this in a very clear way in your own life, how God has made the determination to come after you. He's not waiting for you to come after him. He's coming after you, amen? He's not waiting for you to create a religion that gets you to him because that's not gonna work. But he said, you know what? You can't get to me, but I know how to get to you. It's found in John chapter four. Let me tell you a little bit about the gospel of John very quickly. The Gospel of John, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four Gospels. The first three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels, and they give synopsis of the life and ministry of Jesus in a little bit different form, very similar forms, but they tell the story of Christ, his teaching, his miracles, and so forth. The Gospel of John, while it includes certain miracles, has a bit different focus. He starts in a different way, and it outlines the story and life of Jesus in a bit different fashion. There are 21 chapters in the book of John. And the primary word that you'll find over and over in the book of John is the word believe. Say that word with me. Believe. This is the theme of John. Believe, 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 believe. To as many as received him, chapter 1, verse 12, he gave the power and they believed in him. He gave the power to become sons of, sons of God, children of God. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You go through the 21 chapters of John, you'll find this word, believe, 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 coming up over and over again. Why? Because John's purpose is to write so that we will come out of his, his stories doing what? Believing, okay. And in John chapter 4, he leads us down a pathway into a story of how Jesus came to bring a particular woman to a place of belief, because belief is the way you experience God in your world, in your life. He comes and he asks, all he asks of us is for us to actually believe in him. That's the only thing that we bring to the equation, our faith in him as he reaches out to us. So let's take a look at this amazing story in John chapter 4, beginning in verse number 1. It's going to be a fairly lengthy reading down through verse 26. I'm going to break it apart as we go, but it's a very powerful lesson for us today as we talk about dealing with this whole idea of being restricted by religion. John chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself didn't baptize them, his disciples 
apostles did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. Let's stop there just for a moment. If I were to draw a map of Israel, which that's a horrible map of Israel, but just uh, bear with me, all right? Uh, Israel, Judah, or Judea, we might say, the southern part. Galilee was in the, the upper part. Sea of Galilee is here. I should say really over here. And the Jordan River runs down through here as well. Excuse me, it should be inside here, down through here as well. The Bible says that Jesus left, Gal- left Judea to travel to Galilee. So he's in the south. He's going to make the journey to the north. The reason is because the Pharisees are moving toward trying to arrest him eventually and, and crucify him, which will ultimately happen there in Jerusalem. But it's not time for him yet. So he's going back up north where his hometown was, Capernaum, into Galilee there at this moment to enter into ministry. But notice what happens in verse number four. He had to go through Samaria on the way. So in between Judea and Galilee was this territory called Samaria. And the Bible says he had to go through Samaria on the way. Now, this had to is an interesting statement in the original language and in John's narrative of this story, because had to doesn't mean he had to, because most Jews never went through Samaria to get to Judea, to to Galilee uh, on their journey there or back from Galilee to Judea. They would always travel outside of Samaria, outside of the Jordan River, and bypass Samaria to get to Galilee because of their perspective and and sense of of the Samaritans being unclean and people they did not want to associate with. And so when it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, it means that he's on a divine assignment. He has to go there because there's someone he needs to meet there. There's something that needs to happen there. He's going there on a divine assignment with a divine appointment in place. The Bible says in verse 5, eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. And so he's going through Samaria because he has a divine assignment there. Most Jews would have traveled outside. Jesus said, no, I've got to go through Samaria. And he goes through Samaria and he ends up at Jacob's well. By the way, Jacob's well is still in Israel to this day. You can visit it in the territory that is still in that Samaritan area of Israel. A church is built over it. So this place is a real historical archaeological place in Israel. So he goes and sits down by the well, and he's tired from the journey, has been walking a long time. It's the noon of the day, so it's likely very hot. And the Bible says next, soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. And so Jesus begins a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And he asked of her a drink of water. Please give me a drink. Verse 8 says he was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. So the disciples weren't there. So here's Jesus with a Samaritan woman asking her for a drink of water. Verse 9, the woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with the Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? This lady is confused. She doesn't understand. What's a Jew doing here? And second of all, what's a Jewish man doing talk, uh, talking to a Samaritan woman? That doesn't happen. And so what I want you to see is that Jesus is breaking all the cultural rules right now. But he's breaking all the cultural rules, rules because there's somebody he wants to reach. Listen, there's nothing that can keep Jesus away from you, okay? 
There's not a single thing that will keep Jesus out of your world. So he's breaking all the rules that everybody else expected to be set in place. Jesus said, no, what's more important to me than all these cultural rules, all these racial discriminations, all these things that are going on in this culture, what's most important to me is there's a person there that I love who needs me. She can't get to me, but I'm going to get to her. I'm going to get to her. So he breaks all the rules to get to her. Thanks be to God for Jesus. Anybody thankful for Jesus today? Okay. So he says, I need a drink. The lady says, you're talking to me? Asking me for a drink? And then notice verse number 10. Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you, if you only knew, if you only knew the gift God has for you, he's talking to her personally, and who you're speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. If you only knew the gift that I have for you. Dear ones, if you only knew the gift Jesus has for you. If you only knew who you're speaking to, you would be asking me for living water. Notice the lady's response in verse 11. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. She's still on a natural level here. She's not getting it. Okay. You don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? Interestingly enough, this Jacob's well that exists to this day in Israel, even to this day, it's 75 feet deep. Archaeologists and Bible scholars say that somewhere during the time of Jesus it would have been around 150 feet deep or, or deeper very deep well. It takes a long rope to get down 150 feet to draw water. So it's a very deep well. And she can't figure, here's the guy sitting there. He doesn't have a bucket. He doesn't have a wet rope. He said, where are you going to get this water? You talk to me about living water. Where are you going to get this water from? And then she says this. And besides, do you think you're greater? Do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Jesus said, when you drink my water, something comes alive on the inside of you. And all the water you will ever need for the rest of your life, the living water that you need will be in you. You'll not have to look outside for it. It will be in you. See, that's the difference between religion and Jesus. Religion always points you to something outside. Jesus says, no, I want to come inside. I want to come inside your life. But those who drink this water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Verse 15, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. She's still kind of on a natural level, okay? She's not quite getting it. So Jesus now turns the conversation. He's opened up the conversation by asking her for water. They've engaged a little bit of conversation now. And now after mentioning the living water, he's getting to the core issue with her. And so she said, give me this water. And Jesus now in verse 16 gets real personal and says, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. And notice her reply, I don't have a husband. The woman replied, 
Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands. And you aren't married to the man you're living with now. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Truth is here. You certainly spoke the truth. Jesus, in a very non-condemning way, says, you know, dear lady, you're exactly right. You spent all these years in your life looking for love. You spent all these years of your life trying to find that right person that was going to satisfy what you're longing for on the inside. I'm not talking to you about the water that's in the well. I'm talking about the water that needs to be in your soul. And there's no man that can ever water your soul. There's no love, no human love that can ever water your soul. The best relationships in the world will never completely satisfy you. If you're looking for that, you found out already that you've already gone through five husbands. You're living with someone now that's not your husband. Don't you understand? That's never going to satisfy you. Never going to fill the hurt and the broken places in your heart that you're seeking to be healed and made whole of. Verse 19. I like what happens next. This is such an amazing story. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. Duh. (laughs) So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship? I love the way she completely moves away from the husband conversation. She wants now to talk about religion. I'm a different religion than you. That's what she's saying. I'm not your same religion. Don't, Don't you know that we Samaritans, see the Samaritans has set up their own place of worship And they did not go to Jerusalem to worship. They worshiped there in Samaria at Mount Gerizim. But so so now she's using this excuse. Don't you know I'm a different religion than you are? Let's change this subject because the only way I'm going to defend myself against you, I got to bring some religious stuff into this thing. Jesus replied, verse 21, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. It doesn't going to matter. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who worship him that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Suddenly, the lady is beginning to understand something because she says in verse 25, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming. The one who is called Christ, when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Verse 26, would you read it together with me aloud and loudly? Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. This is the I am. The great I am, the same I am that spoke to Moses at the burning bush, Jehovah Yahweh. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am what you're really looking for. You've tried to fill your soul with relationships and with a love of people. And you found out that that doesn't satisfy you. And you've tried to fill your soul with man-made religion. And that doesn't satisfy you. But I'm here today to offer you something that will forever satisfy you and that's living water that can only come by me and what I want you to see in this story so many things that I want you to see but please don't miss this part 
this lady didn't find Jesus. Jesus found her, okay? Jesus found her. And what I want you to know today is that Jesus is a Savior that comes, the Bible says, seeking and saving the lost. He's the one that comes looking for you and me. And so the next time you are tempted to say, I found Jesus, perhaps it would be better to say, Jesus found me. Would you say it together with me? Jesus found me. Aren't you glad Jesus found you today? Amen. You were out by a well somewhere. You were living in some circumstances of your life, and somebody invited you to church. You didn't even want to come. The only reason you came is because that friend asked you to come, and you sat down in a service like this, and the Holy Spirit started knocking on the door of your heart, made you uncomfortable. But by the end of the service, you said, hey, I think Jesus just found me. You were driving in your car one day, and you happened to turn the radio, and you're flipping through, and there's a preacher on the radio sharing the gospel, and you find yourself weeping in the, in the car, realizing that you needed Christ. Jesus found you. You had a mother or a father that prayed for you, a grandmother or a grandfather that prayed for you, and they one day shared the love of Jesus with you, and you were convicted in your soul. You said, you know, I need Christ in my life. Jesus found you. Jesus is looking for you today. He's looking for all of us to offer us water that will satisfy us. One last thing I want to say as we conclude today. If you're trying to fill up your life with other stuff, if you've got some little gods in your life, can I just encourage you to lay them aside and say, Jesus, you're the one that I need in my life. I want to drink the water that becomes a spring of water inside of me for eternal life. Bow your heads together as we pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. We're so very grateful for the opportunity we've had to reflect upon the fact that religion tries to push us to get to you, but you came to us, Lord, so we could have a relationship with you. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us today that where we've been trying to find satisfaction, that perhaps we, even as believers have tried to fill our lives with things other than you. I pray that today there would come a fresh recommitment of you being number one in our lives, of us saying, Jesus, we want your living water afresh. Revive, refresh, and restore your people, we pray in the name of Jesus. Thank you for that work in our lives. And Lord, I also pray today for those who are among us who perhaps have never given their life to Christ. I pray that today would be that day they would open their heart to you in Jesus' name. I would like to close today by giving you an opportunity to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Would you pray with me right now? Right where you are, just simply bow your head with me, and I'm going to give you a prayer to pray, and you can simply speak this prayer out, whisper this prayer out, and from the sincerity of your heart, call upon God, and I promise you that He will hear and answer you. So let's pray together. Start by simply whispering the name Jesus. Let there come uh, from your heart just the declaration of His name. Say, Jesus... I know that that I am a sinner, that I have fallen short with you. I'm sorry for all of my sins. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are God's Son. I believe that you are the Savior of the world. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the grave, that you are alive today. Now pray these words. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. 
Give me a new start in you. I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, I want to encourage you with a promise from God's Word that says that when we call upon God's name, we call upon the Son of God, there is salvation that comes to our lives. He changes us from the inside out, and you become a new creation. All things pass away. All things become new. And that's exactly what has happened to you today. Your next step really is to make sure that you get into a good Bible-believing church. And you begin to study God's Word, get God's Word in you, and to make sure that you get a copy of the Bible if you don't have one and begin to read it. Spend some time every day in prayer. And I would encourage you also to check out the resources on our website that will help you to get going in your relationship with Jesus. You can find them at church-redeemer.org. Get those into your hands. Get started in your new life with Jesus Christ. Thanks again for joining us today. May God bless you, and we look forward to seeing you next time.